Hi, I'm Holly Elmore. And I'm Alex Frieder. And this is the Turing Test, Harvard Defective Altruism student podcast, bringing new perspectives and fresh ideas on how to do the most good for the world. Our theme is the ideological Turing Test. Economist Brian Kaplan coined the term the ideological Turing Test in 2011, explaining that if someone can correctly explain a position but continue to disagree with it, that position is less likely to be correct. And if ability to correctly explain a position leads almost automatically to agreement with it, that position is more likely to be correct. So, Holly, who are we testing today? How to introduce Spencer Greenberg. He's a man who wears many hats, entrepreneur, doctorate in applied math from New York University, researcher, startup founder, and he's extremely productive in his spare time, too. He founded SparkWave, a startup foundry which creates novel software products designed to solve problems in the world, and a few of the issues they've tackled are scalable depression, care, and technology for improving social science. He's also founded clearerthinking.org, which offers free tools and training programs that have been used by over 150,000 people and which are designed to improve decision-making and reduce biases in people's thinking. Please note that, like the previous episode, this interview is also two years old. I think the best way to get to know Spencer is by talking to him, so I hope you enjoy getting to know him as much as we did. Thanks so much, Spencer, for coming to talk to us. We usually start with career trajectory and try to get insights on you know spending your life and spending your time well. And we've noticed that you have spent your time like extremely efficiently, um, even if you have comments on how well you spent it. So first, just you know, tell us about your education and startups during your education and tell us about your, your career trajectory. You know, so what do you do now and how did you get there? Sure. So I'll work backwards. So now I run a firm I started called SparkWave and our goal is to look for problems in the world that we think software can help with and then to create companies to try to solve those problems and ultimately spin them out as independent businesses. So for example, one of the problems that we are working on is depression. So we have an automated program for depression called Uplift. We just finished a pilot study of it. We found it was able to reduce depressive symptoms in the study by about 50% for the people who completed it in 34 days on average. So that's an example of one of the products we'll be releasing. Okay, so that's, that's where you are. So in terms of getting there, you, you have a PhD in math, right? That's right. So I have a PhD in math where I specialized in machine learning, sort of mathematical aspects of machine learning. I also used to run a quantitative investment firm. I designed an algorithm to buy and trade stocks. And so I did that for a number of years, along with my PhD, kind of doing them simultaneously. Prior to that, I went to Columbia, studied applied math, computer science, and been a programmer my whole life, basically. So that's my background. How did you manage to juggle the startup during your PhD? Well, fortunately, they were both quite flexible because being self-employed, I could choose what, how to spend my time, and PhD, well, my advisors were, were very kind to me <laughs> and gave me a lot of flexibility. They knew that I was working, so it just I lucked out that way. We hear that actually a lot, that people, you know, because they had the flexibility and the trust and, like, the good graces of the people in charge of them who were paying their salary, that they were able to explore and get to these kind of unconventional places. Do you have any advice for getting there? I mean, if you end up going to do your PhD, I mean, the, by far the most important thing is who your thesis advisor is. Mm. So it's really about choosing that person that you want to work with and who gives you the flexibility that you want or need. Yeah. So what do you think is the value of a PhD for a person who is similarly minded to you? And what are the main costs? Do you think 
it's overall worth it? Would you do it again? I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons that people might want to do a PhD. One is they might want to go into academia. And for that motivation, I would just say it's incredibly important to first check what that market is like. Because mm-hmm. I'll just give you an example. I was seeing a philosopher friend of mine yesterday who mentioned that at one of the top philosophy departments in the country, about it's typical for like over 300 people to apply for a single tenure track oh. position. So <laughs> your odds of getting that job are, are so small, it's absurd. So anyway, it's just very important to know what, what are you getting yourself into at the end of you know six, seven, whatever number of years. And I think a lot of people don't do that research and they really regret it. I think another thing is that it's very important to look into what is it actually like to be in that in that field as opposed to what does it look like from the outside. And this could be very mm-hmm. different things. So an example, sometimes people who go into biology are surprised at how much time they spend pipetting and mixing, <laughs> and, you know, because from the outside, it's like we're doing science. But from the inside, it's like we're moving liquids from one tube to another. You know, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of interesting stuff in biology. But, you know, the point is that you, before you go into a field, like, Talk to people who both are in the field, but also people who left the field. That's super important because mm-hmm. if you just talk to people in the field, you get a you know extreme selection bias towards people who like like it and thrived in it. And in fact, most in many academic disciplines, most people end up leaving it. So you know you don't want to miss out on the majority of people who went through it when you, when you do your research. So. Yeah, let's ask Steven Pinker. Well, do you think uh, getting a PhD? How is it being Steven Pinker? Yeah, did you enjoy that? It's pretty good to me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, also in terms of the education, not only the degree, besides math, how how has it influenced your thinking, and what do you think is the value of math? You, you did more applied stuff, right, with in terms of machine learning, but yeah, yeah. Well, to me, I think of of math as providing a very useful viewpoint on the world, and especially when it comes to thinking about like, well, first of all, think about probability. And I think once you kind of do a mental shift and you start thinking probability, you realize that everything should be thought of that way. In other words, you shouldn't, you know, ideally you shouldn't say, I, you know, believe in Obamacare. You should say like, I'm, you know, somewhat confident that Obamacare is better than an alternative or something like that. Like everything mm-hmm. should be in degrees of belief because there's nothing, there's virtually nothing we should ever be fully confident in. And of course, you know, in practice, it can be inconvenient to always talk that way, but you should at least be thinking that way <laughs> if you want to have a really, you know, the most accurate view of reality that you can, right? And so to me, that's, that's an incredibly important mental shift you can get from studying math. Another one comes from optimization theory, where once you've studied optimization theory, you now, you think of things in terms of optimization problems, and you realize there's like, okay, well, there's seven variables that we can tweak in this situation, and we want to make, you know, like, which one gives us the best marginal improvement? Okay, let's focus on that one. And how do we get to the highest peak possible? And you think in terms of local optimals that you can get mm-hmm. stuck in and global optimals that you can get to. So I think that's also a useful mental shift. Yeah. And when you mentioned probability and uh, thinking in terms of uncertainty, you apply that also to your own thinking and being what you call self-skeptical. So can you talk a, a bit about the value of self-skepticism and how, how you train that? How, how can you get there? Yeah, I mean, I think that self-skepticism is incredibly valuable, but it's important to to point out that what I'm referring to is not like being down on yourself, but sort of oh, being yeah. down, but more like being down on the human mind, uh-huh. <laughs> like yeah. understanding that you know we we are human, our brains evolved to be good at certain survival-related purposes, but you know that's that's what we have to work with is this this kind of limited, flawed piece of hardware, and everything we do is going to be colored by that piece of hardware, and just 
understand it, trying to understand that deeply and, and know, okay, what, what sorts of things is my brain going to be reliable at doing and what sorts of things is it going to make mistakes at? And then once you accept that, first of all, you can start making better decisions because you can start knowing what you're like, okay, brain, like, I know that you're not being really reliable right now. Like, maybe I'll try back tomorrow, you know? So an, so an example would be when you're feeling highly emotional, it can be a really bad idea to make irreversible decisions because mm -hmm. chances are that when you're feeling less emotional, you're like, you might have a different perspective and it may be, it may be not that the emotion should be ignored, but that the emotion should be taken into account, but it shouldn't completely color that decision. So that's an example. Or another example is that the feeling, going back to the probabilistic thinking, the feeling I, that I believe something, well, what is that? It's literally just a feeling your brain produces. And so you can mm. just kind of shift perspectives there and say, okay, the feeling that I that something is true is just a feeling, and that hopefully that feeling is correlated with something actually being true, but it's not the same as something being true, right? Mm. So you kind of, mm. you, you take that outside perspective, like looking at your thoughts instead of being inside your thought and just assuming that whatever you're thinking or feeling is, is the truth at that moment. Well, I was actually imagining you at a um, marriage ceremony at, at the altar and being asked whether you... Well, let, let's wait for a minute. I uh, feel like my decision might be emotionally colored here. Let, let me meditate for a bit. Actually, Are you uh, capable of strategic commitments? Or... <laughs> I mean, you know, marriage is obviously something you should think very long and hard about before you get to the altar, so. <laughs> sure. Charles Darwin had this really elaborate pro-and-con list. <laughs> oh, really? Unweighted, but he it just barely came out in favor of marriage. But he said something like, marriage, 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 at the end. It's really cute. I think he, he knew what he wanted in the end. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm interested in going off of what you said there, because... That sounds, though, the mindfulness perspective sounds, and what you're saying about looking at thoughts and realizing that the feeling of truth is just a feeling, sounds very much like cognitive behavioral therapy. And that is related to your most recent product that you were talking about, right? So Absolutely. And uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, for me, was actually one of the big things that got me interested in rational thinking, because there you start yeah, to see... experience. Oh, yeah, great. Because there you really start to see how how like kind of lack of rational thinking can have really damaging consequences in your life, like making people depressed, making people anxious. Now, now of course, people, you know, sometimes when people are depressed or anxious, you can fully understand why they would be that way. Like they have their real problems. It's not like they made up those problems. But the interesting thing is if you examine the kinds of thoughts that people have when they're anxious or when they're depressed, very often there's a component of it where it's not fully true. And so one thing that cognitive behavioral therapy helps you do is examine and say, well, is this fully true, what you're actually thinking right now? Or maybe is there some distortion going on? And then if we correct that distortion, maybe that can help you feel better. It's not going to necessarily make you feel perfect about it. You still might have to do a bunch of problem solving to deal with that problem in your life, but often it will make you feel better. And so an example of this is very often when people are feeling anxious or depressed, they'll, they'll do things like overgeneralize, where they see something like a, a couple bad things happen, and they see that as a pattern of bad things that they're now projecting will always happen to them in the future. Or they use black and white thinking to go back to this probabilistic example where they'll say, I'm either good or bad. If I, if I do bad on my test, I'm a bad person. And if I do well on my test, mm -hmm. I'm a good person, right? And you know, there's literally something like 10 of these very common distortions that psychologists have just observed so often that they say basically these are almost like reliably occurring when people are in these states. And then we can actually help people figure out new ways of challenging these distortions and that can really help. I mean, that's not all there is to CBT. There's a lot of other stuff going on there, like behavioral 
interventions, but that it is an interesting and important component of it. So CBT and other forms of therapy actually appeared in your recent Facebook post on extreme <laughs> interventions that uh, yeah. uh, people reported to be helpful. I'm curious, what, what are your favorites from that list of extreme interventions that maybe you have applied or if you don't, don't want to talk about your personal experience, what, what interventions do you have most credence in as being life-changing Bro- broadly useful mm. well just to just to review like so what you're referring to is recently i did a, a post about these different interventions that at least some people claim radically improve their lives because usually when people do kind of self-improvement interventions of any kind usually they either have no effect or maybe a slight positive effect or maybe even a slight negative effect but occasionally you hear someone they're like i just did this thing and like i'm completely different now and then like two years later <laughs> they still feel like they attribute that thing that they did to like having radically altered their life. Mm-hmm. So if someone who posted actually on that on on that article commented, they said they started writing a book on like techniques for boosting happiness and for cha- you know and changing your life. And then they mm-hmm. it, to write the book, they did they had to do all these different techniques and by the end they were so <laughs> changed as a person that they no longer <laughs> wanted to publish this book. <laughs> so, <laughs> Probably No, I think it was just their priorities to totally change and what they wanted to focus on in life. And so anyway, I, th- I thought that was really interesting. And from my own perspective, you know, I-, I think it's just important to say that with radical interventions, there's always an element of risk. And so you want to be really careful about what you try. For example, like I think meditation can be a really useful technique. For about a year, I meditated just about every morning. And I found it useful and I felt like it, it helped me in certain ways and also helped me develop certain mindsets. On the other hand, that you know, there are these super long-term meditation retreats, like 10-day ones, and some people were some people will report them being life-altering in a positive way, but some people they can actually be very disturbing. Like sitting there with your thoughts for 10 days can can be very upsetting and even dissociating in some cases. So, you know, you just have to be careful with these things. And I think you you wanna, you know, build up to them. Like start doing a daily meditation practice before you jump into a 10-day meditation. Like really know what you're getting yourself into, you know. And it's, you know, a similar thing applies to, to almost any of these kind of radical interventions. Like fasting, for example, don't just jump into like a one-week fast. Like do a one-day fast first, you know, build up mm-hmm. to it. Yeah, we actually talked to, to a person recently who, who is a serious meditator, but said that he felt more detached from his, his life and felt like nothing was really fundamentally important as, as a result of meditating <laughs> a lot. Yeah, so that's an interesting effect. Well, you, you seem to be a really systematic thinker in this way, and I'm sure you have many other lists of things, uh, not, not only extreme interventions. What are some of your favorite lists? Well, what, one list that I was working on is trying to figure out health interventions that there's almost universal consensus around, health and nutrition, because, because the issue there is that if you've ever looked at papers in, in health or nutrition science, you find tons of contradictory information. And it gets even worse if you start looking at like blogs or articles and you right. just it seems like you could come to almost any conclusion about anything. There's someone made a wonderful chart of like all the things that have been proven to cause and prevent cancer, you know. <laughs> so, you know, it's really hard to make sense of it. So one approach, which I'm kind of interested in is like, okay, there's a lot of stuff we can't, there's like really complicated, we can't figure it out. But what are the things that sort of nearly everyone agrees about? Like with very little people disagreeing. And so I tried to make a list of that. And then I posted it publicly and said like, what am I wrong about? And what am I leaving off the list? And so I started building, growing and growing and growing. And actually I was surprised at how many things that I was able to find that at least in the people looking at it, nobody knew of like people that objected to them. And so 
you know, I'd like to continue refining that and ultimately be like, okay, here's a list of health interventions that we can probably believe, right? Great. So we should link to that yeah. in the show notes. Link in the show notes. Sure. <laughs> so you're given to systematizing, it sounds like. <laughs> and, uh, yep. What made you realize uh, that? <laughs> <laughs> um, but do you, but you, you work a lot on also creative ventures and I just, I, I love the marriage of systematizing and creativity. I think that's the, probably the ideal approach. Well, I, well, but my, I would like to know what you think about that. I mean, my view is that if, you can't systematize creativity. You're just not being creative enough. So, (laughs) 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 I promise I didn't plan that one. (laughs) Wow. That's that's really good. This hasn't come up before. (laughs) So I, because the, the goal of my company is to create new ideas that are helpful for the world. There's a certain, there's a, you know, certain inherent challenge in that of saying, well, why do we think we should be able to come up with new ideas that are, that other people haven't tried or that are somehow, more likely to succeed than what other people have done. And, you know, well, that's a bold claim. Like, why do you think that you could do that? And a lot of people are trying to come up with ideas, right? And so, well, we've thought a lot about, well, what makes it possible to generate ideas that other people don't have? And so I, I have a, a framework for thinking about this. And so, you know, the way, I, the way I like to talk about it is if an idea is possible and it's discoverable and it's smart and it's big, then almost certainly someone has already come up with this idea. So how do you come up with ideas other people haven't? Well, it's simple. You just make them impossible or undiscoverable <laughs> or stupid or tiny. We're <laughs> all four if you really oh, yeah, want. Finally, yeah. I was looking for the golden nugget. <laughs> so, but each of those words actually comes with framework of how to come up with ideas. And so mm. impossible ideas, well, clearly you can't come up with impossible ideas, but you can come up with ideas that are impossible until now. Right. So that means ideas where being on the bleeding edge of technology, a new thing has suddenly become possible. So why are you able to think of it when others haven't? Well, they will think of it. They just they haven't gotten around to it yet. And you can be the first if you understand that technology and you're kind of a little bit forward looking. Of course, you might be too forward looking and might do it too early. But so that, that's one example. Or let's take undiscoverable. Right. Of course, you can't come up with an undiscoverable idea because it's undiscoverable. It's impossible. Right. But you can, there's a way to generate ideas that are very undiscoverable to other people. And so suppose that you really, really understand topic X, right? And one, only one out of 80,000 people understand topic X. And mm. suppose you also really understand topic Y. And again, only about one in 80,000 people understand that as well as you do. But the two ideas are unrelated. So understanding one mm. doesn't make you more or less likely to understand the other. Well, congratulations. You may be the only person on earth that understands why. <laughs> Of course, you don't actually have to be the only person on Earth because, you know, how, out of all the people that understand something, how many are actually going to come up with a particular product idea or creative idea that you did and how many of them are actually going to try to execute and how many of them are execute it well? So maybe it's okay if there were 5,000 people who could come up with that idea, right? But maybe it's not okay if there are 50 million people who could come up with it. So, so that's a, you know, so that just gives you two examples, but this is part You're of how stupid. we think of it. You want to know how to do generate stupid ideas? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know how to do that, so I, you'll have to teach me. <laughs> oh, that's a great question. So this is actually, this idea is based around a, a framework that Peter Thiel uses. He calls it your secret. So what do you know about the world that very few people know, such that there are ideas that sound stupid if you don't know the thing, but they actually are smart because you, mm-hmm. because you know the thing, right? And so I, th- I would argue 
that the idea of having anonymous random people on the internet decide what's true about every topic sounds like a ridiculously stupid idea. And yet <laughs> that is basically what Wikipedia is. And I think almost nobody realized that Wikipedia was a great idea. Like mm. there's something about you'd have to understand about like crowdsourcing and ways to get communities to like produce high quality content that like very few people understood. It's not even clear that the creators of Wikipedia understood at the time or if mm. they just viewed it as like a random experiment that they weren't putting much stock into. That just gives you an example. And then I guess we might as well finish this up because we're, <laughs> we, we might as well talk about tiny ideas. So this is actually based on the lean startup framework. Basically the idea there is how do you come up with a new idea? Will you look for a problem that you can directly see or experience or the people you around you directly see or experience? And the nice thing about this is it gives you a straightforward path. It's like, what problems do I deal with? What do I find frustrating or annoying or difficult? And it also can give you more confidence that the thing hasn't been solved. Because like, if you and your friends have this problem and none of you have are using a solution, maybe there isn't a solution or at least one that's not widely adopted. So this can be a nice way to like look for new ideas. And the thing is, Big companies may also not have discovered this idea because it's tiny. It's like it's, even mm -hmm. if they thought about it, it might not be worth even trying to go into that market. So the idea is you start small, you try to build something that's great for that little market. And then what, if you can succeed and actually win that market, then you say, what's the, the closest adjacent market? Right. Because mm -hmm. this, this market's small and that's not. Or maybe it's OK to just have a small market. It's a lifestyle business. But if you want to grow, you say, OK, what's the closest adjacent one? Now, maybe we can take that one on, too. And then you kind of can keep mm -hmm. growing from there. Of course. You know, going back to optimization theory, you can get very easily stuck in a local optimal where you have mm -hmm. an idea, you solve a problem, but it's only this big and that's it. And there's really no way to jump to a better. You would have had to start until a different point to get to a better idea. Cool. So let's say that you have an idea. In Silicon Valley, you often hear the advice of you have to be overconfident or really confident about your idea in order to be able to succeed. And I'm curious about curious about how you relate to that question as, as someone who is uh, aware of cognitive biases and in, in particularly of the overconfidence bias? That's a great question. It's very important when people give you advice to ask them why they're giving you that advice. Mm -hmm. And and then to, yeah. <laughs> but, but to not assume that they necessarily are giving you the best answer to that question. Like, but, like understand mm -hmm. why they're giving it to you, but then also understand there could be other reasons that, to, to do what they're saying. Mm -hmm. But once mm -hmm. you kind of go through the different reasons to do what they're saying, it gives you a lot more confidence of whether you should or shouldn't follow the advice, right? The advice mm -hmm. itself yeah. is hard. To, do they really understand your problem? What are they basing it on? Okay, yeah. so let's take the idea that you should be overconfident. What are the advantages of being overconfident in a startup? Well, first of all, other people will think you're more likely to succeed. Mm -hmm. It's a funny thing about the human brain where when someone seems to lack confidence, we, we tend to believe them. <laughs> that they're, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're probably not that impressive. And when, when someone seems to be confident, we tend to believe them that they are impressive. It's kind of mm -hmm. an unfortunate fact, but it's true. Furthermore, there's a belief among investors that it's easier for founders to succeed if they're overconfident. So even if they don't fall <laughs> for it, they might say, well, other investors will. So I, I, I trust that this person is more likely to be successful. So it's, a, it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy there. Also, people tend to find overconfident people more charismatic and like want to follow them, like want to be around them and do what they say. So it can help you like recruit a team, for example. And, and furthermore, when your team gets discouraged because there's maybe your setbacks, they're going to look to you to know how to interpret the setback. And if you are blisteringly overconfident, they're going to go, oh, I guess that's not a big deal that we're about to run out of money and nobody's using our product and et cetera, et cetera. Right? <laughs> and so they'll, maybe they'll keep working a, lot, a little bit longer and maybe you have more chance of success. On the other hand, overconfidence increases the chance that you fail dramatically. 
because mm. you keep driving towards something that doesn't make sense. And instead of giving up like a normal person, you <laughs> stick with it. Now, the thing about stick with itness, which which overconfidence helps with, is that it increases the probability of success because like the more tries you have, the more chance you have of succeeding. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's in your in your advantage, right? Because you care about other things besides just maximizing the probability of success, like not destroying your reputation or you know <laughs> not having catastrophic failures or not losing people lots of money and things like that. You know, so they may make you the most likely to succeed, but not you know it doesn't necessarily mean it's always in your interest. All that being said, being overconfident when it comes to decision making can be disastrous. So like you are convinced that your plan is a really good plan. And evidence starts rolling in that your 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 plan's not such a great plan. Like you better update on that information and change your plan. If you're overconfident in with regard to decision making, it's going to be a huge problem as an entrepreneur. So it's kind of this funny thing where the optimal entrepreneur would be super overconfident in public, but when they actually <laughs> are evaluating their own plans and decisions, they actually would be appropriately confident. Mm -hmm. However, if they're maximizing just for a chance of success. They would need to be also overconfident when it comes to deciding whether to quit or not, right? <laughs> so, you know, there, there's benefits and, and costs. And the way that I think about this, like the way I try to resolve this issue is I say, okay, the probability of one startup succeeding is low any way you cut it, even if you're really talented. However, if you think about it as a process that you're running, like I'm going to devote the next five plus years to running this process of creating a company. And I know that I might have to pivot a bunch of times. I might change my mind. And. But if I keep running it, every year I run it, I like increase the cumulative probability of success, both because I have more tries, but also because I'm going to learn from my mistakes and get better. Mm -hmm. I don't think if you're you know, a talented person who can stick with things, I don't think it's crazy to think that if you try really hard for five years and keep with it and pivot when appropriate, et cetera, I don't think it's crazy to think that that has a decent chance of success, right? It, but mm -hmm. it is kind of crazy to think that this particular idea that I'm just going to do for the next four months has a high probability of success. Mm. Right. Oh, so I'm also curious about how you prioritize between many different promising ideas because you you ran a lot of startups and I'm sure that with your methods you came up with many more ideas than you could implement. But I hope that's a reasonable assumption. So given that you have a number of ideas that, that seem like they could be promising, what methods do you choose to prioritize between those? Yeah, so the way, I, the, the way I like to think about this is that you should have way more ideas than things you actually do, mm -hmm. right? Like, it's, it's very dangerous having one idea. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it, you, it improves things dramatically if you have two ideas that you like equally well because you become immediately much less attached to that one thing working. If you have one idea, you don't want to hear about any of its flaws because that means <laughs> your idea now is not as good as it was, right? If you have two ideas, then if you're hearing about one of their flaws, it just makes you like the other one more. So it's like kind of much more okay psychologically. It's the same when it goes to hiring. You have to be very careful if you only have one candidate that you think is promising for any job because you're going to find a way to hire that person. Like, you know, even as their flaws come in, you're going to be like, yeah, maybe they're flawed in this way, but we really need to fill this position and like what they're good in this other way. Whereas if you have two candidates, it's just, you know, it's just this relative rebalancing. So my preference is to have a hundreds of ideas and then try to wow. destroy them. And so, you know, my brother and I used to play this game where we'd generate a business idea and trade them with each other every other day. And I would use a timer to see how fast I could come up with the ideas and see if I could get my time to improve. Oh. <laughs> At the end of that, we came up with a hundred ideas and I went through them all. And I think there were like, maybe it was half a good idea. 
Like, I, just, <laughs> I, I literally thought they were all bad ideas, pretty much, except for maybe like one was like, okay, <laughs> like that. That's how I like to think of ideas: is is start with hundreds, try to destroy them all. Like, if you can't destroy a lot of them, then something weird is happening. You're either like the best person at creating ideas in the world, or you're, or like your filtering mechanism is not good enough. And then. Over time, as you continue trying to destroy ideas, some ideas just you have trouble killing them. You're like, this still seems like a really good idea. Like, even though I'm trying to find the flaws in it, and I, it's also super important to talk to two types of people. You know, sometimes in, with startups, people are like super secretive. And while there are exceptional cases where that's warranted, it's usually a terrible idea because you can get so much value from having smart people help you make your idea better. And so you don't want to tell the world, you don't want to go publicly broadcast an idea that before you've built a product. But you want to you want to pick out two types of people. One, people with relevant knowledge. So if you're doing a healthcare idea, go talk to someone who really understands that area of healthcare because they're going to have a lot of information you don't have about why your idea might be flawed and maybe how to make it better. And two, show the idea to the smartest people you know and give them time to reflect. Don't just be like, hey, you want to talk about this now? Like, say, hey, would you mind reading this like information and thinking about it for a while? Because you're there, you're really leveraging the their their brain power. Yeah, don't give them the elevator pitch. Like for that type of person, let them reflect deeply and then say, I want you to destroy this idea so I don't waste my life doing it. <laughs> and that's the other thing is really making the person believe that you really want to know the flaws because very often when people say, hey, what do you think of my idea? You kind of have this feeling like they don't really want to know. <laughs> and, and like, and you just don't want to take the risk that they, you know. Um, yeah. I recently heard about this wealthy guy who like dabbles in philosophy for fun. Or maybe it's like his kind of his hobby, be super wealthy. And so he paid a famous philosopher to write a review of one of his like philosophy papers. And the guy absolutely obliterated it. And <laughs> actually the philosopher he hired is famous for obliterating things. It's like his, it's his whole thing. <laughs> so you gotta wonder what this what exactly this guy was hoping for. But you know, I think a lot of times when people when people ask for feedback, they're not really looking for feedback. And so if you actually want to know if your idea is good, you better make it super clear to the person you're talking to that, that you want them you want them to find the weaknesses and, and explain to them why, like how it's going to benefit you. So Sounds like the kill your darlings approach to, <laughs> to yeah, thinking. Yeah, that's why you have to have Those a lot of right. children, right? Uh, Metaphorically <laughs> <laughs> speaking. In, because... in the spirit of thing here. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this, I, I find this super hard naturally. Do you have any techniques for being that ruthless to, your, to yourself and seeking feedback more? Yeah, I actually have an article I wrote about about seeking criticism. I think that it's incredibly powerful tool. And the way that I get myself psyched up about doing it is like I imagine two worlds. In what world A, like I have this horrible weakness that I don't know about and like other people see it and I'm just like <laughs> I live like with this weakness the rest of my life. And in world B, uh-huh. I like become aware of it quickly and then I work to fix it and I no longer have it. And I'm like, oh my God, I so much li- rather live in world B. Like that's great. It's it's amazing how people can live with weaknesses their whole life without realizing it because people will it's just a social thing. People will not tell you your weaknesses unless you unless they're either just have an unusual personality or they are really annoyed by that weakness and they're just like can't deal with it anymore. Or maybe they're just an asshole. But <laughs> the key is to involve like nice people, like to ask nice people to help you find your and correct your weaknesses and you know, and again make them understand why you, you care so much and you can rapidly remove a whole bunch of your weaknesses and then you can live in world B where you just don't have them anymore instead of world A where you're deluding yourself into not thinking you don't have them. So, for example, there's this wacky speed dating event someone invented where what happens is when you go, people 
write down at the end of each speed day they write down their impression of you and at the end you get this like little packet of like what everyone thought about you and just like this crazy experience of uh, kind of information that almost nobody ever hears about themselves mm. it's like what does someone think of me meeting me in five minutes right mm. Where do you get the confidence that it will be better? You'll just address your weaknesses. Because I think, you know, for the person who's like rationally afraid of hearing a lot of criticism that, you know, they're, they're afraid that they're not going to be able to fix it. And, and now they're just aware of something that they can't. You're sharp and ugly. That's your problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so, I think of it as a lot like I, I think of it with startups, which is that, sure, the first thing you try to correct their weakness may not work. But like you have a long time and you're just going to keep throwing different strategies at it. And there's a high probability eventually you'll you don't have to necessarily fully overcome it, but you'll at least be able to improve it or find ways to work around it. Because when you know it's there, you might be able to adjust your life. So it's not as big a problem, even if you can't correct it. So the other thing is, and I, I, I think this is just deeply important, is understanding that the world is not made of magic. Like there, the world has rules and you can inspect those rules and figure stuff out. And if you like, if you really care about solving a problem, you can say, okay, let me go ask other people for their advice about how to solve it. Let me see how other people have solved it. Let me go read books about how to solve it. Let me, you know, let me set a timer and think for an hour about ideas about how to solve it. You know, let me involve other people and like get them to help me. So, you know, it's just, there's so many things you can do if you just say, I like, I want to solve this problem and just work through it systematically. So to me, I find that very inspiring that, it's just about, you know, a lot of it's just about persistence, about not giving up. Unless it's rational to do so, right? <laughs> sure, sure. But, uh, but the point is that I think it's often not if it's, a, you yeah. know, if it's an important weakness. Like going back to that list I've been working on of radical interventions that at least occasionally make people have, have much better lives, or at least people report that. Part of why I wanted to produce that list is because I wanted to be a kind of primer of like, okay, I'm stuck. My life is shit. Mm. What should I consider mm. trying? And and again, you know, some of these things have risks, but, you know, you you have to think carefully about is it worth the risk? You know, should I maybe try something I've never tried? Maybe I can go through this list and pick out three things. I'll start with the one that's safest. And then if that doesn't work, maybe I'll try the next one and keep working my way up. And, you know, I want people to know that there are like over a dozen things they can try for almost any problem they have. Mm -hmm. Cool. So we've touched on both feedback and incremental improvement and these more what Pierre Thiel would call zero to one changes. And this also plays out in the world of startups. And there are these two schools, one of which is focused on these incremental improvements, but one of which tries to make changes that people wouldn't come up with from first principles. So it seems that you combine both of these elements in your thinking. And I'm curious about what you think about these models for, for business, whether one of them is superior or if, if some combination of them is, is the optimum? You know, I don't think it's the sort of thing where you could say one is superior. Mm. It, it really is going to end up depending on what your goals are. So I really care about having causal impact on the world. In other mm -hmm. words, I care about making the world better in a way that it wouldn't have been had I not done the thing that I'm doing. Right. Because the way I think about it is if it would have just had that benefit without me, then I haven't really caused it in a meaningful sense. Like I mm. might have felt like I caused it. And that's why I don't love I, for myself startup ideas that I think someone's about to do anyway, mm -hmm. because I'm like, OK, well, the world's going to get that <laughs> thing. And even if I did slightly <laughs> better, like, 
you know, how much value is that added? I prefer to do things that actually could have been done 10 years ago. Mm. And the reason is because if it could have been done 10 years ago, then there's either it's a terrible idea and I've got to figure out why, <laughs> or maybe people have tried it and the company's all failed and you just can't tell that, they're, that they don't exist anymore. Or there's some reason that people didn't think of it because of going back to this frameworks of thinking of ideas, maybe just there are so few people in the world that have expertise in X and Y that it's just like very, no one's been able to think of it. Or maybe there's something really subtle, like you have to understand about the world to realize that that's a thing worth doing, you know. Or also, sometimes what happens is there's people have these very strong categorizations of like the, what the world is like. Like, oh, there's A, B, and C, and you're like, and, and you describe your idea, and they're like, oh, so your idea is A, and you're like, no, 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 my idea is, you know, blah, 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 and they're like, oh, so your idea is B, and you're like, no, 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 it's blah, blah, blah. and they're like, oh, your idea is C, and you're like, no, 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 your my idea is not one of the standard categories you have in your mind. <laughs> And so, I find those kinds of ideas very interesting where people have a hard time even not, like they can't seem to even say back to you your idea because they're they were used to carving up the space of things in such a standard way that it's like it takes a bunch of effort to like, realize that there's actually some a category between A and B that no like people haven't noticed kind of thing. Mm. Well, some of the difference for you comes down to what you're optimizing for. So for, you know, your typical startup, it's profit but you're also optimizing for positive externalities as well. Absolutely. So how does that make a difference? Yeah, so I mean, for me, my life's mission is to try to have a really positive impact on the world and to do it not by accident or not by luck. <laughs> I mean, it would be great to do it by luck. I just don't, I'm not willing to, to gamble on that. I want to actually I'd do it. I'd be happy with doing it by accident. <laughs> so because of that, so, so think about it this way. Suppose you make a product that's like highly addictive. Now, the problem with making an addictive product is that people tend to consume it more than is good for themselves. And you have this horrible incentive alignment problem where like you make more money by making people more addicted. So in other words, the, your profit is directly at ex the expense of the, of the world, right? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, suppose you make a product where the better you do at making profit, like the more people you help, right? That the latter is the kind of idea that I'm really interested in, and I think it's incre incredibly important if you if you want to help the world with a startup or a project to make sure that your in like profit incentives are aligned with the helping the world and not disaligned. And then once they're aligned, they don't have to be hundred percent aligned, but with their, as long as they're mostly aligned, then you can just focus on trying to make profit because you know that that's very likely going to benefit the world. And it, then you're not so handicapped because imagine you're living in a world where like you can either try to make more profit or try to help the world, but like they work against each other. You're going to constantly be in these moral conflicts and you're going to, and you, and, and you're trying to help the world is actually going to make your business more likely to fail. You really don't want to be in that situation. There are some types of businesses that are just fundamentally problematic in that way. For example, there are businesses where like there's no way to make the business succeed except by having like 200 salespeople that constantly harass people via cold calls, Right. <laughs> like, do you want to go into that business where you're, you're, the better you do, the more you have to like harass people with phone calls they don't want to get? Like, you know, not that that's the biggest harm in the world, but you know, what I mean, it's, just, <laughs> it's, you know, there's something much more appealing about an idea where, like, hey, by making money, we're actually directly helping people. That's awesome. We can do the both. We don't have to. It doesn't have to be a trade-off, right? And I think I would just add that. If you do want to do a startup to help the world instead of doing something completely useless, like many entrepreneurs are willing to do, you have to think longer about the ideas you're doing, right? 
because you have an extra constraint. You're like, you can't just go with the first business idea. Like you have to think more deeply. You have to come up with more ideas because you're working under more constraints. But again, once you pick the idea, as long as you have an alignment between profit and benefit, then you're just doing what a normal entrepreneur does, right? Like it's not necessarily harder. And I would actually argue you have a bunch of advantages over a typical entrepreneur who's doing an idea that's not helpful to the world. The advantages you have is one, it's way more inspiring to work on an idea where you're actually helping people. And that's personally inspiring, which means you're more likely to stick with it. It's inspiring your team, which means they're more likely to stick with you. It's inspiring to people you're hiring, which means they're more likely to join your team. It's inspiring to investors because there are a class of investors who really care about doing good. So you get these like all these benefits that I think are real and, and even and they, you know, they just directly help your company. So I really try to encourage entrepreneurs to just think a little more about the ideas, generate more ideas and try to find an idea that's really aligned with the benefit of the world. That strikes me as just so similar to the life advice from effective altruism to, you know, try to. To, well, to treat your life as, you know, the business of you. I personally experienced it, that it's amazing. You know, like when I was supposedly trying to maximize my life for my own, you know, like not directly causing harm, but for my own satisfaction, it's just so much less satisfying than like, well, for one, because, you know, when you're thinking about improving the world, you're just caring about what's true and not like painful stuff about yourself. But in terms of like, it sounds like that's very relevant for personal happiness. Do you find that in your own life? Oh, yeah. I mean, it makes life so much more meaningful. And I, I call this the beautiful coincidence that like actually focusing <laughs> on helping others like is, is really beneficial to yourself. It doesn't mean that that's necessarily the reason you do it. But like it's just a beautiful coincidence. Like it could what, it could have just turned out that like the best way to like help the world was like to destroy yourself. And that would have really sucked. <laughs> and maybe there are times in history and certain places and situations where that actually is true. But I think we're it's great. We live in a world, you know, a lot of us at least where you can actually go devote yourself to trying to help the world and other people will think it's great that you're doing it. They'll want to give you more money. People will want to join your team. They'll want to help you. They'll offer free, you know, free services and advice because they just are inspired, et cetera, et cetera. So. <laughs> I always feel so suspicious when I, I tell people <laughs> about this thing. <laughs> yeah. So... Yeah. Cause you, you say, well, maybe I'm just, you know, deluding myself and it's all just about me and maybe, you know, not actually about helping the world. Well, that's just, you have to got to do some introspection on that, but well, That's yeah. one thing, but also it's just too good to be true almost. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And and I think the, the part of the answer there is just, it's not always true. It's not always true. Right. It just happens to be true on average in like a lot of situations, which is which is awesome. It's the beautiful coincidence. Well, yeah. People are drawn to the idea that there must be some cost to you for producing something good, you know, to, to I guess, zero sum thinking about altruism and it's so... You know, it's not always true that it's doing trying to focus on good for others is better for yourself, but it's also not always false. And I think that's where people tend to gravitate. No, that's absolutely right. And people view it as the more personal sacrifice you made that it's better ethically. Yeah. Which to me, I don't buy that. Like to me, it's it, mm -hmm. it's not better ethically because you sacrifice yourself. Like if, you know, in one situation you do a certain amount of good. And another situation, you do the same amount of good, but it hurts you at the same time. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'd rather people do the first type of good if it's the same amount of good, right? Like, I don't think it's bad. I think it's actually worse if you're just hurting yourself. I yeah. mean, it's it's worse because, you know, it's bad to hurt yourself. But also it's worse because, like, how is that going to affect the next moral decision you make? Like, if, yeah. you know, are you going to be more likely to do good if you're doing it in situations where it's not harming you, et cetera, et cetera? But, you know, but there certainly are situations where harming yourself does help the world, so. So you said that you need to spend a lot of time to come up with 
an idea that is going to affect the world in a positive way. So do you have an an idea of like the optimal ratio of of time that that you would spend on on finding the ideas versus actually implementing them, or do you have heuristics around that? Yeah, so I would say for a typical entrepreneur, the amount of time they spend coming up with their idea is approximately 0% of the amount of time they spend implementing <laughs> it, unless their company fails incredibly fast. And so it might seem at first glance that that's not true because you'll say, well, this person seems to be like thinking of ideas for like a year or two. But like if you actually look at how much of that year or two they were actually thinking about ideas, it's like approximately, you know, it's approximately no time. Like basically what they might have been doing is just like waiting for something to occur to them and like... Mm. Maybe over that year, they had like two things occur to them. And then they're like, I thought about it for two years. No, you didn't think about it for two years. You like waited for two years <laughs> to get lucky. <laughs> no, thinking, thinking about things means like starting a timer and like sitting down or going and talking to people that, to like help stimulate ideas or reading materials that you think might give you ideas, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, th there's an active component to it. And if you take an active, if you take an active approach, it's not hard to generate ideas. It's hard to generate really good ideas. You know, I think it's a lot more successful starting with a lot of the ideas and, and winnowing down rather than waiting for like one or two ideas to occur to you and assume that that's the best you can do. And so actually one thing that I advocate is that if an entrepreneur has an idea, that they, they try to at least spend a little bit of time trying to build better versions of that idea before they even start. And I think this is so I think the lean startup is is a great framework in a lot of ways has a lot of benefits. But I think one of the really big drawbacks of it is it tends to de-emphasize hard thinking. Like hard thinking is a real thing that's really useful. Like, you know, it's one reason why your chimps are not doing as well as humans on the planet right now is because humans are really good at hard thinking. You know, mm. so if you have an idea like, yes, it's useful, like the lean startup says to like build a prototype, get it out there, get user feedback immediately. But it's also really, really useful to like just think deeply about it because there's a decent chance you could come up with a better version of it just from thinking about it. Mm. And so the, the, so the way I like to think about it is it's like it's like you're going mining and you mine all these different things and a lot of them are like charcoal or, you know, rock or whatever. And occasionally you find some like rough diamond. But once you've all those rough diamonds, you want to then start polishing them, right? Like you want to say like, oh, this one seems promising, that one seems promising, that one seems promising. Let me polish them up as make them into the best version of the idea that I can, and then let's see which ones have cracks in them, and like let's let you know end up you know getting rid of those. So it's sort of like this process of both wide generation of ideas, but then refinement of those ideas through talking to people, through brainstorming, making them the best versions they can, and then eventually eliminating them down to down to one. That's how I think about it. Yeah, so hearing you talk about uh, timers and uh, thinking so systematically, I'm really curious about what your day looks like. But we, we can cut it out if you feel comfortable talking about it. Well, when I wake up, I start a timer. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, for alarm, so. <laughs> I mean, for me, a lot of my day is structured around meeting with my teams that work on different products. So it's you know it's not super exciting. It's more just making sure that I meet with every team when they need it, you know, as often as they need it, and then in between, you know, doing the various operational stuff of running a business, but also just fielding any anything I can help them with, and then making some extra time to make sure to be forward looking and saying what are we going to need in three months, you know, what are our initiatives, what are we focused on, that kind of thing. So, how how many teams do you work with? We have eleven teams. Well, <laughs> that's. Yeah. So it doesn't mean that, you know, we're going to launch 11 products from all these 11 teams. Like inevitably, some of these will die on the on the lab table. 
it's so we're not running 11 startups. We're like a research lab. So we come up with ideas for products. We work on that idea a bunch. We build a team around that idea, like an implementation team. We build the first version, V1. And to us, version one, or the sometimes called the minimum viable product, is not like the first version of the thing that you can like put out there in the world. To me, that doesn't make any sense. Like, if you think about products that startups make, it's like crazy that anyone would ever use them because first of all, they're full of bugs. Second of all, they don't have many features. Third, like there's a decent chance this company is going to stop existing in six months. Like, why on earth would you use a, com- a product made by a startup? <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's a very nice answer to that question. And the answer is that that product should be the best in the world at one thing that people care about. Mm-hmm. That is completely answers the question. Well, of course I'm going to use this product because it's the best at that thing I care about, right? So that's what I view as ver- version one. So that's what we try to do. For these 11 teams, we're trying to build version one, which is mm-hmm. designed to be the best thing in the world at one thing, exactly one thing. And then, of course, over time, we'll hone it a lot and add a lot more features and you know, make it prettier and all those kinds of things. And, and sometimes those, you know, those, of those 11 products, some will fail. Some will fail because of technical challenges that are really deep. Some of them might fail because of you know, market issues, that, that, that the market's not there, et cetera, et cetera. But... Yeah, so one of my favorite projects of yours is Clear Thinking, the website. So could you just very briefly describe it? And then I'm also curious if you could share your long-term vision for, for it, where you would see it in like five or ten years if things go very well. Sure, happy to. Yeah, so clearthinking.org. You should check it out. It's a website <laughs> where we try to help people make better decisions. So we have, we've made approximately 20 free tools, training programs, educational modules, things like that. You can go on and you basically they do things like analyze your decision making, give you a report about it, or mm. they teach you about biases that might be negatively affecting your decision making and help you to be better at it. So basically the, the idea grew out of the fact that there's all this really interesting research in cognitive science, psychology, economics, math that really can give you indications of how to improve your decision making, live a better life, get the things you want. But there's very little trickling down of this into allowing people to like really practically apply it in their lives. You know, there's lots of books that talk about these ideas, but then, but there's very little that's actually like helping you practice using it, getting you thinking about how you're going to use it to, to live better. So that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to really integrate it in tools and training programs that people could do for free. So that was our mission. But then as we kept doing this and you know, as, we, as we gained more success with this, what we realized is that we kept encountering situations where we didn't. We, we would look at the academic literature and we say, "Well, there's not enough here to go on. We have to just do new things. We have to invent <laughs> new things." And so, increasingly over time, our tools have grown more sophisticated, and we've started doing a lot more of our own studies. So we're literally mm-hmm. running our own studies to try to answer questions about the way humans work and how to help them more. So, I mean, we're running a ton of studies right now. For example, we're running a study on habit formation, trying to figure out how to help people form mm-hmm. new positive habits. We're doing a study on decision making. We build a new tool to help people walk people through really difficult life decisions and help them avoid mm-hmm. biases that might cause them to make a bad decision. We're doing research into uh, personality and gender. We're doing research on predicting depression. What are the biggest predictors mm-hmm. of depression? So there's tons of research like this that we think can inform our work in lots of different ways. One thing that people may have heard of, even if they don't think they have, is that you, I don't know if it's through clear thinking, but you did a study of political attitudes that predicted voting behavior in the last election. Yep. I really appreciated that because uh, even I had sort of fallen prey to thinking that like 
Well, who knows? You know, we have these like reasons to suspect that there were these trends in voting, but it would just to see you just like take the, the knife to the Gordian knot and just say like, <laughs> we could just ask people and then tease apart the answers was fantastic. So can you just tell me a little bit about that study? And Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, I was really excited about that research. Basically, we, we what we would see every day is articles published about like, here's why people vote for Trump. Here's why people vote for Clinton. And <laughs> first of all, they, they those were very rarely based on data. And second of all, when they were based on data, they used, they tended to use incredibly simplistic, very limited methods where they do like, you know, they look at five variables and they're like, this variable is most predictive. And like, therefore, that's why people vote for, for Trump or Clinton. And we saw a real lack of sophistication in people analyzing the problem. And so what we decided to do is really try to dig into this problem. And what's cool is because... Our research, we don't have to, you know, we're not trying to publish it in a journal. We don't have a deadline for it. We just, we want to understand the topic and then we want to help people understand it. So because of that, we've got this really nice alignment of incentives where we can say, okay, let's just try to understand this. What do we have to do to understand this? And so we actually ran a series of studies. It was like study after study after study because very, what I find is when you run research very often, the end of research actually produces a bunch more questions or confusions. And then you have to dig deeper with another study and deeper with another. So we started with a qualitative study where we just asked a whole bunch of Trump and Clinton supporters, like, why do you support your candidate? And then, but also asking questions around that because you, you, know, you want to ask in different ways and kind of get mm-hmm. elicit different attitudes. What do you dislike about the other candidate? Which issues do you care about most? All these things. That mm-hmm. led us to a bunch of hypotheses. We also supplemented those hypotheses with the hypotheses from these articles we were reading, just you know, added them in. That produced a very large number of factors, 138 factors. So then we ran this massive study where we gathered data on each of these 138 factors, and we tried to build a predictive model of who votes, who said they were going to definitely vote for Trump versus who said they'd definitely vote for Clinton. And we found that we could do that with super high accuracy. It was over 90% accurate on new data that we hadn't looked at. So if we took the model we already trained and then applied it to new people, we could really accurately predict who they were voting for. Furthermore, by looking at that model, you can gain, you can't, you can't get causality. You can't say like, well, people voted because of this, but you can mm-hmm. look at what, what factors were highly relevant, were like highly predictive of their decision and which just didn't have much predictive power, right? And so when you do that, you get some really interesting results. Like the first thing you realize is that the party people belong to, Democrat or Republican, is, just, is the strongest predictor. Like a lot of people <laughs> want to make Trump out to be like completely different than every other candidate, mm-hmm. but the reality is that people are very much along party lines. So that's just sort of the first thing to deal with. But then when you look a little bit deeper than that, you start seeing some really interesting things. For example, one of the strongest predictors of voting for Trump was actually views on political correctness. So once we found once we found these kind of which factors seem strongest, we then did another study where we studied those particular factors and we actually asked people about why they felt the way they did about those factors. So, mm-hmm. so you see the way the process mm-hmm. went. We did qualitative research followed by quantitative research followed by mm-hmm. another <laughs> round of qualitative research. <laughs> Because that's that's the way it works when you're trying to figure out the answer to something. It's like, but quantitative research is more rigorous and better. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, it, that w- that's been my experience is that you tend to find people fall really hard on one side or the other. They're like, my way of thinking about this after doing a lot of studies is basically I've concluded that if you only do qualitative research, then you really are not sure if you're measuring anything. Like you think mm-hmm. you're measuring something, but you don't really know. You might just mm-hmm. be tricking yourself. But if you only do quantitative research, you don't know what you've just measured. Like, mm-hmm. if, for example, we asked people the question in the study that about their views on the statement, there's too much political correctness in this country, right? Mm-hmm. 
until we did the follow-up qualitative study, we didn't know what that meant. Like we knew, that, <laughs> we knew that Trump supporters had a very high level of agreement, and we knew that Clinton supporters actually were very split. It's not that Clinton supporters disagree mm. with that. It's that they're highly split. You only can see that if you actually visualize the data. If you just look at the averages, mm. you're very confused. But if you visualize it, you realize Clinton supporters are actually highly split on that. Well, what's going on? Well, we had no idea. We then did the follow-up study. We asked people, and we learned a lot about this. And we realized that, for example, one reason Trump supporters really don't like political correctness is because they feel that society is too sensitive. And it bothers them. They, th they feel like it's not, if you they say something they believe and someone else is bothered by it, it's not their problem. It's that other person's problem. Furthermore, a lot of Trump supporters will say that they think political correctness prevents important topics from being talked about. So we actually ran another follow-up to find out, well, what are these important topics? That's pretty, you know, we were pretty interested. Like, what, okay, what, what is not being talked about? And so that was really interesting too. Like, for example, a bunch of Trump supporters felt that certain issues around terrorism were not being talked about properly mm -hmm. because people were so afraid of saying something that was offensive. They didn't mm -hmm. want to dig into the issue and say like, well, how do we know that someone coming from a certain country is safe? You know, let's discuss that. Let's discuss whether we do, you know, should we have any criteria? You know, tr some Trump supporters would say that, well, we can't even have those discussions, right? So this was very enlightening. And, and I think the more I dug into this research, the more I felt that like, a lot of times there are reasonable arguments on both sides of an issue. Like, of course, there are exceptions. There are times when just one side is clearly wrong. But <laughs> but most of the time, even if one side is sort of right overall, the other side has some reasonable points. And just ignoring the other side, first of all, it increases polarization, which is really bad. And second, it makes it a lot harder to convince the other side if you ignore their points. And third, you lose out on all this valuable information because they probably have some correct points that you could adapt into your theory of how the world works. So this was for us very enlightening. I think we learned a lot. Cool. And at this point, we should mention that the whole episode on rationally speaking of you talking with Drew Aguilar about how you bring in more feedback and iteration, thanks to the internet, to social science research. And that's a great one. And we'll definitely link to that. Yeah. Um, so if you're yeah. not tired of my monologues yet, you can get a <laughs> more monologues in that, in that podcast. <laughs> Well, I'm sure listeners are fired up for more. I'm going to <laughs> download it right away. I'm curious if, if you if you have any hypotheses of where this approach could go next, where where it hasn't permeated very much yet. I mean, increased feedback iteration that you use in social science research. Can can you see any other areas where perhaps you would like to apply it, or you would like to see it applied by someone else? You know, it applies to virtually everything. Like this idea of fast iteration with feedback. Like I like to think of the metaphor of an archer. Like imagine you're an archer and you're firing arrows at a target, but there's a very weird rule at this archery range where you have to close your eyes as soon as you fire the arrow and you're not allowed to look at where it hit or didn't hit on the target. <laughs> I mean, you could literally go shoot archery that way for years and never improve, right? Because you <laughs> never have an indication of whether you did a good job. You know, now imagine that they adjusted the rules and instead they had a guy who would tell you if you hit the target or not, but he'd tell you an hour, an hour after you shot each arrow, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, there you may have a hope of improving, but like barely, right? Like <laughs> it would be really challenging. You'd have to like remember, okay, how did I shoot that arrow? And then like an hour later, you find out if it hit and you're like, okay, I'm gonna try to remember and I'm gonna try to adjust my form. But it would take, it would take forever to get good, but at least mm -hmm. you'd have a prayer. Now, suppose that the same thing happened, but this time he tells you, the guy tells you immediately whether you hit or not. He just says hit or missed, right? Mm -hmm. Well, now you have a much higher chance of being able to learn, right? You can adjust in almost real time. 
but still, that's not nearly as good as shooting the arrows with your eyes open, right? Because with your eyes open, you can see actually how far from the center you hit, and not just did you hit or not. So what this is illustrating is that the importance that the more feedback you have, the faster it is, the more reliable it is, and the more nuanced it is, the, the faster you're going to learn anything, right? right? And it doesn't matter whether it's social science, you're trying to figure out the truth about Trump versus Clinton supporters, or you're you know, an accountant and you're trying to figure out if you did a good job of filing someone's tax return. Like, mm -hmm. if the longer you have to wait, the more noisy the process of the feedback is, et cetera, the worse job you're going to do. And so I kind of advocate in every discipline, you know, it, trying to make that feedback loop as tight and and reliable as possible, but it, of course, that it's only as possible. Like in some fields, you just can't find out very fast, right? Mm -hmm. That's just there's a limit to that. Yeah, is is there an example that you can think of where, in learning new skills or just in your personal life, there was an area that had by default very slow feedback or not sufficiently good feedback, and you improved the quality and speed of feedback. Yeah, absolutely. Like in, well, maybe, you know, maybe this is not in everyday life, but like public speaking is the thing a lot of people mm -hmm. want to mm -hmm. get better at. My friend and I, we developed a game where we went through, we created a list of all of the good public speaking practices that we could find. Mm -hmm. Then in real time, we would, we would give the other, the other person a topic, be like, give a speech on true love now, right? <laughs> and then we'd have to try to give an impromptu speech And with the other person, we have a list of all of the good public speaking practices. And when we violated one, they would shout it out in real time. <laughs> and, you know, we did, we did a bunch of practice like this. And, you know, I could still improve a ton as a public speaker. You know, there's still a million things I can improve. But I think that was, it did help a lot. And, you know, if I stuck with it, I think it would help. You know, if I was going to continue doing that, if that was really a priority, I think that would help You know what's great more. Yeah. for this? Podcast editing. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I, I, the early episodes, it's like half me removing my laughter. <laughs> so that's not okay. Now I'm going to do it. <laughs> Why are you removing your laughter? <laughs> well, because I just would be talking. And then, especially on Audacity, like I can see all the features of my laughter too. Mm. So it's like if we're talking, it's kind of nice. Then suddenly I'm like deafened and like it goes <laughs> up into red and the waves are huge. And I'm like, <laughs> and it sounds really dumb to me because it's not the way it sounds in well, my head. A lot anyway. of TV shows <laughs> add a laugh track. So I feel like that, I mean, you should consider keeping it there. I think it's. I think it's a positive, but I'll, I'll have somebody else review it. But <laughs> um, I'll have to ask you for the list, and I'd love to go and go through it because that's yeah, something. this would be a funny game, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, you I, must have the list somewhere. Oh yeah, I've got the list. I, I should write an article about it and put it online. I mean, the thing is, this is going back to the thing that like the world's not magic. Like, you know, you might think you're not a good public speaker, but you can. Go read a bunch of articles about how to be a good public speaker. You can go talk to experts or friends who are better than you. And then you can have people sit and watch you do it and tell you how to improve. And you practice and you'll get good. Like, you know, I, I think even if you started in the 10th percentile, you could probably get way above average if you practice enough, right? I mean, there, there may be some people who could never get that good. But I think that's really rare, actually. I think most people, if they care enough and practice enough, they'll, they'll, they could get really good. To give you an example of this, I had a friend. And she was telling me one day about how she's really bad at games. And I was like, you're bad at games? Like, what do you mean you're bad at games? She's like, yeah, I, I always lose every game I play. Like, I'm just, I just inherently am bad at games. And I'm like, okay, like, who do you play against? Well, it turns out she was playing against, like, people who play games constantly and love gaming. And I'm like, well, of course you're losing the games. If you actually care about improving, you know, you can easily do that. It's just a priority thing. Do you care enough about improving? If so, you know, it would be very easy to develop a plan for you to get good at games, you know, so. 
Yeah, it sounds like in general your views on identity are very like loosely held. <laughs> um, what we just interviewed Brian Tomasic right before you, and he mentioned that you know the only thing that at at bottom, you know, he's pretty upfront about saying at bottom the only thing that like gives any like theory character ends up being biases. But it's like I don't quote <laughs> away. And I'm curious, are there things like biases and imperfections about you that you have affection for and you like to hold on to? Are are there are there any things that you consider off the table of self improvement? Well, I think core values, right? You, I have I have a lot of resistance to the idea of changing my core values, but it's also but when core values of mine come into conflict with each other, I am interested in resolving that, like figuring out a way to resolve that conflict. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think the way I think about it is there are things that you value and you don't necessarily want to change those things, right? Then there are things that, there are traits that, that stand in the way of you achieving what you value. And like, the, for me, at least, I want to change those. I want to change all of those so that I can do the best job I can of, of creating the things I value. So, you know, I, I guess I try to separate it that way. The values are more fundamental to like who I am, and the rest is just like something I can improve at. Cool. So I think we should go to our wrap-up questions, and the first one is always the ideological Turing test. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> and your ideological Turing test will be to represent as best you can the position that social science should stay exactly the way it is. Oh, okay. That's an interesting one. All right. Well, first of all, social science has produced a tremendous number of valuable things. For example, it's produced cognitive behavioral therapy, which I think mm-hmm. is, a, is, I mean, I, I think is a very effective therapy for depression and anxiety and I think has monumental value in the world. Second, there's a lot of positive, well, I don't know if this is in line with it, saying exactly the way it is, but I think social science already is, is improving in a lot of ways. Like people are much mm-hmm. more aware of bad practices that are occurring. They're working on improving them. There are many great initiatives, like Brian Nozick has a bunch of really cool projects mm-hmm. in this space, Center for Open Science. And so it's actively working on improving itself and correcting bad practices, making everything higher quality. Third, I think that there are a number of really fantastic researchers who like, you know, it would be hard to say what they could even do better if they, if they try. Like they're just really, really great researchers. Fourth, if you think the tradition is valuable, you know, social science has a long history of doing things a certain way. And, you know, maybe maybe there's value in, in continuing that tradition, even if it's not optimizing for all the things that I care about. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now... No. You passed! <laughs> Very well. And now feel free to destroy that argument. Yeah, if you want to provide a rebuttal, then... <laughs> oh, 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 I get to do a rebuttal? Okay, well... <laughs> I, I actually agree with all the things that I said. None of those are things that I think are untrue. But what I, with the nuance I would add is that I think the practices in social science could be, A, much more directed at directly helping humans, which I think is the important thing here. And B, I think the practices in general could be improved in a lot of ways, like better, better usage of correct statistics, a lot mm-hmm. less data mining and p-hacking, where basically you kind of like search for a way to get the result that you want. Less reliance on arbitrary cutoffs, like P equals 0.05, means the thing is true, but otherwise it's not. Like, which is it really is <laughs> mathematically nonsense, and like, and it's a problem that it's so it's sort of so embedded in the research use of a wider range of methods. So, so using machine learning techniques when appropriate, using Bayesian techniques when appropriate. Sort of researchers viewing it as like there's all these useful, powerful tools, and not getting too wedded to like a particular way of doing things. That, but I, you know, just 
to me, like the most important thing is is changing the incentives so that there's a really pure intention of figuring out the truth in a way that helps humans. And I think if you know people talk about making all of these improvements to social science, getting people to publish their data instead of just keeping it on your own computer, like you know happens most of the time, getting people to pre-register their studies, and all of these are great things. And I really think that they should be promoted widely, and I hope that people adopt them. But the thing I would say is that when the incentives overall are saying, you've got to get a paper out, you've got to get a paper out, well, reality is complicated. It's hard to figure out a new novel insight about humanity in six months and you've got to write the paper, right? So what's going to happen? Something's going to give. If you've got to get the paper out, you're going to, maybe you're going to use squishier or worse practices so you can get a result that looks nice. Maybe you're going to do something that's, that's novel but more trivial and doesn't actually help anything, right? So it's really ultimately a lot of this problem stems from the incentives. And this might sound silly, but I think it's really a, about purity of intention when you're doing every part of the research. Because as someone who now designs and runs a ton of studies, there are a hundred decisions that you don't see when mm-hmm. I go and publish a paper, right? right. You don't see a hundred decisions that I made. So if mm-hmm. I have, if my intentions are such that I just need to publish this instead of I need to figure out the truth about this. I'm going to make those hundred decisions in a biased way, and so that's to me the number one most important thing. Cool. So another rapid fire question. Well, this one is not really rapid fire, but so you mentioned multiplicity of tools as being important in research. So what is an underappreciated or underused tool? It could be a quantitative tool or or mental model. Do you think people should know more? So one tool that I love is asking research subjects why they did a thing, uh, which sounds, you know, it's funny. It sounds stupid to people in two different ways. Like some people will be like, well, that's stupid. Of course you're going to ask them. And the other people are like, that's stupid. You can't trust what they say. Yeah. But, but, the, but the reality is actually it's incredibly valuable. And so many times have we now learned that there was a flaw in our research because we asked people. So that has just yeah. been an invaluable tool for me when connecting research. You know, in, in personal life, I think we talked about getting feedback from others. I think that's an invaluable tool, both on your startup idea and on your weaknesses and finding ways to build. You know, it's, it actually all kind of all ties together nicely. Building a tight feedback loop, invo- you know, in your personal life often involves like getting really high quality, rapid, non-noisy feedback from the people around you. You know, whether it's your romantic partner or your, you know, your friends or family. So that's, I think, also an underused tool. So underappreciated thinker or academic or in life that you think people should appreciate more? Well, I mean, I think that Slate Star Codex, the blog is still not, <laughs> still not as well known as it should be. Like, I think it's, mm. I think it's mm. just a really has amazing insight. Not that mm. I agree with everything that he mm. writes by any means. You know, I certainly disagree with some of it, but like, I think it's just a, a blog full of insights. And so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> and a book recommendation. Ooh, well, I'm, I'm tempted to use the same book recommendation I did on Rational Speaking, which was Feeling Good, which is a book. Yes, approved. <laughs> if, you're, if you're feeling depressed, well, I mean, the best thing to do is go to, for example, a cognitive behavioral therapist or a psychiatrist. But the easy thing to do is to go buy the book Feeling Good. It's a really wonderful book about depression. It's helped a huge number of people. It has a lot of great ideas. If you're anxious, try When Panic Attacks by the same author, a really wonderful book as well. But just for, I'll throw in the third book because to be add something that's not irrationally speaking, which is that if you want a kind of perspective shift on the world, I highly recommend reading The Selfish Gene, 
Like, mm-hmm. I thought that I understood evolution when I was, you know, in school, but like not until I read that book did I actually really, I think, begin to think of evolution in a much deeper way and understand how it affects the world today. You know, that book is pretty old and there are newer books that have maybe more updated perspectives in some ways, but I think it's a wonderful book full of great ideas. Mm. By the way, an anecdote. Uh, so, so Holly and I were, were hanging out this other day, and she mentioned about the uh, okay. Feeling yes. Good. So I just because the mass market paperback of Feeling Good is really cheap on Amazon. You know, yeah. I would just send it to anyone who told me like well, I have like twelve I, copies. Of it. <laughs> but so I but yeah. I got to the point where I had it told me on that listing that I was not allowed to buy anymore. Are you serious? <laughs> yes. I didn't know that could happen. Maybe they like thought you, bought- you, maybe they thought you were like the working for the author trying to inflate the sales numbers. Cause there are actually, think- there have been oh, yeah. disreputable organizations that have purposely bought like 10,000 copies of their own book in order to try to get to the, you know, New York best, New York times bestseller status I mean, or whatever. I, I definitely bought less than 20, so I don't know what was going on with that. But yeah, so I had to find the... You already feel good enough. You can't have any more copies. (laughs) (laughs) You're becoming the utility monster. No, so now I have to buy them from the publisher or something, because I would just be like, you know, send them off to... Anybody who seems well, kind I have, of I have 12 copies. You can, you can have some. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember how we, how we told Julie about giving it out to everyone who, who seemed like they could use it. <laughs> I, yeah, I've been at, well, I just find the problem is oftentimes when someone's depressed, it's just they're, they lack a lot of motivation. And so being able to give them a book is a relatively low motivation thing that can be quite helpful. And it might also inspire them to get other treatment, even so I think a lot of people do find it useful to read that book, but even if it doesn't, they, then they start, can start thinking more about the benefits of getting other kinds of treatment. So I think it's getting just a, a package in the mail to like that little things like that meant a lot to me when I was really depressed. And I think that, that that getting a physical gift, like all that, the act of caring is important too. So I like having it sent from me, but uh. <laughs> I, I, think, I think it's it, absolutely if it's someone that you trust. I think receiving a, a book being like, wait, does this person think I'm depressed? <laughs> Why did they send me this book? Can be a little jarring. But once, oh yeah, no, yeah, I definitely yeah. don't. When it's unsolicited, but you know, if people come to me and say that you know they're feeling depressed, I usually like say like, can I send you a present? You know, and, and they're like, no, oh, that's sure. great. That's really great. I think people will find that really useful. I thought you had the same situation with the book buying. <laughs> I, was I, like, I haven't. I haven't been banned from buying it yet. I'm, I'm on my way, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, so just for the record and also uh, for you, Spencer, thank you so much for being on the show. It was really amazing to have you and thanks so much for all your insights. Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. Thanks for listening. Now enjoy our theme song written and performed by Chris Baker.